0: You think after almost twelve years, I'd know where the switch was by feeling it, but I don't. Feel turn in your Bibles, please to Second Samuel chapter twelve. <laughs> I know I handed you notes on Psalm fifty Wallach translation, um, an outline for Psalm fifty one, which we are looking at. But I want to get you some context today: a little bit of history, a little bit of the story. Um, that kind of helps, um, by God's design, helps dramatize what's going on in in, uh, Psalm 51. The life of David is intriguing because so high and so low, the ups and downs of David's life with the Lord, I mean, with walking with God, and the consequent blessings of David's life and the, the cursings, the discipline that God brings on David and his household um, it's it's fascinating uh it's epic it's the saga, the epic of the old testament really um, after the the exodus event and um this is the uh the outcome of David's sin with Bathsheba, which you can read about in second Samuel chapter eleven and uh just real quick, just show you how this story works by the design of uh, probably nathan who wrote this or one of the prophets in the school of the prophets it happened in the spring this is uh second samuel 11 1 it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out and go out and come in in hebrew in the bible usually refers to warfare i'm a little child i know how to go out and how to come in this means i don't have any clue about how to uh, defend this country when solomon says that well david doesn't go out when the kings go out to battle in the springtime that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem really important the way that verse is framed when kings go out is how the thing begins and David stayed so the story of David's greatest failure in his life is begins with the wrong place at the wrong time a man in the wrong place at the wrong time And since I'm not preaching adultery today, but I do want to help you with sexual sin, the most important thing in terms of um, preventing sexual sin is not um, hormone therapy or whatever people try. I mean, it is good if you're struggling. It is good to go for a run or take a cold shower. But the main thing, in summary, as you watch the Bible on sexual sin, is setting conditions setting conditions don't hang out where Bathsheba is taking a bath especially when there's duty when you're when you have duty to conduct don't forsake your duty and put yourself in a dangerous position a precarious place where first of all your conscience is already defiled so you're already weakened and then satan comes with an attack with some sort of temptation And the complex combination of your sin nature and the lust of the flesh and the attack of the enemy of God, Satan and his fallen angels on you and the spiritual warfare that we're having means that we must set good conditions. Set conditions for success where sexual satisfaction is in God's institution of marriage. God's design for us is to have certain appetites and these appetites are to be fulfilled in the right context, in the right way. In fact, the greatest appetite that we have is the need for our, I contend, is the need for significance or for our lives to matter. If you really boil things down and you really think why you're here and contemplate your mortality and, hey, there's only a couple decades left and all that, okay, there's a huge appetite for this to mean something. And that's God. That's only going to be satisfied by a relationship with God, recognizing you're creating His image for His purposes, for a relationship with Him to glorify Him. Now, David falls into temptation and commits sexual sin of a very gross nature. He uh, sees this lady having a bath on the roof, which apparently is how you do that back then. And, um, and he says, you know what, let's uh, buy her over. And uh, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, who's married to one of David's um, officers, a battalion commander or a general or somebody important and well-known in David's army. Um, is uh, is away at war, and so David is not at war where he 's he's supposed to be on duty. He is back home uh, waging war on uriah 's family, destroying what God has preserved and protected in his institution of marriage and so uh, he commits adultery with Bathsheba we don 't know about we always want to say well what was her role in this? Was she uh, advertising or whatever that she knew the king lived next door and um, you can't speculate on that. It doesn't talk about that. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is David's sin. And she suffers too, big time. They lose their child. That's a product of this, um, this sinful union. But David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. David, got a problem. We're late. Weeks later. And so now David has to solve this. So he tries to bring Uriah home. He calls for him, and he, he tries to do the honorable thing and hide it. No, it's not the honorable thing, but he tries to cover up this pregnancy in its early stages by having the husband who's been out to war come home and do what husbands and wives who've been separated by warfare tend to do. And so uh, Uriah screws up David's plan. He, He destroys David's scheme by saying, I can't go in and enjoy the benefits of peace and prosperity and home life that we're fighting for out there against the Ammonites. I can't do this while the armies of the Lord are out in battle, and the ark of the Lord is out with the armies. How can I do this? And so this young commander, this young officer in David's army is shaming. He's more of a David that we've read so far in the story than David is. David has lost his way. He's lost who he is, his, his core principles of being on duty about his father's business. And so Uriah is on mission and he says, I can't. So he sleeps outside. The men are outside. The ark is outside. I'm going to sleep outside. He doesn't go into his house. And so David can't prevent, and he tries to get him liquored up. He gives him, he gives him wine and says, uh, you know, just take it. It's okay. You know, everybody, everybody does this when they come home. You know, it's, it's okay. And he says, I can't. I can't do it. And so David cannot cover it. See, the Hebrew Bible is just as complicated as your life. All this is going on in this, in this soap opera of the Bible, this drama of David's self-destruction. David can't get him to disobey, so Uriah has been uh, above and beyond demonstrating the standards and the character that God wants from his people. A, pe- a man committed to duty, a man seeing God's glory as the issue. God's ark is out in the, in the rain. I'm going to be out in the rain, if you will. He's, he's out in the, in the elements having to suffer um, the, the privations of war. A lot, of, a lot of military problems are the diseases that come about from being out there, and 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 the, the health concerns and, and things that happen. They call it old soldiers' disease. It's probably killed more people than bullets. That's dysentery. You know, it's really a tough thing. Um, and it was really hard back then when everyone was already basically camping out uh, in their homes back home. But so so Uriah is uh, is a great. Example. He's he's a great character, but he's a short-lived character in the Bible, no pun intended, because now David has failed to uh, get Uriah um, uh, to cover up the, the adultery. And so he, with Uriah, as he goes back to his troops, having been a man above and beyond, or really of the standard who overcame some serious temptation where the king says, hey, it's okay. It's not okay. This man carries his own letter where David says, don't, don't uh, look at this letter, but take it to the, to the general. And the, the, the letter says, put him in the hottest part of the battle where he'll die. So David is the worst villain in, in, that we've seen. He's, he's almost like Ahab here. And uh, he's just covering his tracks. But it's just one guy. And, you know, it's me or him. He's pretty much got to go. So he sends the letter that will have the, the general put Uriah where he cannot help but be killed. Uh, you know you know where arrow range is if you're besieging a city, so you stand back a little bit from arrow range. and You just wait until the people are starved or, or dead by disease in a siege. But if you make your guy go up and in, into arrow range, he could be shot by arrows. And this is the kind of thing that, is, that happens to Uriah, something like this. David has him placed within where the where the city they're besieging can can get him and sure enough Uriah dies and that's murder now David uses probably Ammonite arrows to kill him but that's what happens and so in chapter 12 now let me before we go let me let me talk about Bathsheba a little bit verse 26 of chapter 11 when when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife. She bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Kind of an understatement, <laughs> if you will, right? And so the the prophetic commentary on the story, we know God's viewpoint of David's actions. There is no oppressing the, the, the weak by the power of the of the. The, the strong in God's economy. You're supposed to have one law in, in Deuteronomy and in Exodus Leviticus. You're supposed to have one law for everybody and you don't give favoritism to the poor or to the rich, but everyone is under the same law. And so David has acted like the kings of the Gentiles. He's acted like the king, the people that run uh, our federal government. That he's just acting in his interest, covering his tracks, making alliances and arrangements. is very uh, godless what he's done, but God is there, and he doesn't approve. And so, then the Lord sent Nathan. How did Nathan come about to, uh, to go to David? How did the prophet come to the king? You know, the king can kill a prophet. A lot of the prophets were killed by the kings of Israel. This is, this is the thing. The prophet isn't untouchable. If I'm, if I'm already godless in my thinking, I'm already killing people who are uh, more like I should be than I am. If I'm already murdering Uriah, then... Profits prophet's at risk. See, I don't think Nathan said, hey, you know what? I want to go get my head cut off. God said, Nathan, go talk to David. And Nathan said, it doesn't say, but Nathan said, Lord, don't you know he's the one that killed your... That's what Ananias says when um, when God, when the Lord tells him to go speak to Saul of Tarsus, who has uh, seen the Lord on the road to Damascus. Don't you know, Lord, he's the one that's persecuting us? I feel bad for Nathan, kind of, you know, because he, he I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. David is... Is dangerous. I'm going to hide out over here a little bit. The king has got life and death in his hand because of his position, but not according to God's design. Is he supposed to make a law, make himself the law? And so, this is the story in Second Samuel 12 that nobody's above the law. Nobody's above God. Even the king has to answer to God. And so Nathan comes as one under the command of the king with his hand. And his, his life in his hands, and we'll see this later, Nathan and Bathsheba come to an aged David, and one of the, the, one of the last stories of David's life, and say, hey, you know, the kingdom's in trouble, and you need to go ahead and designate Solomon as your heir, because your other son's going to take the kingdom. And, uh, and they're scared to come to him, because David, he could snap his fingers and, and have you killed. Nathan's in a precarious position, because David, um, is I think he's drunk on his power and prosperity. He's failing the prosperity test. Then the Lord said, uh, <clears throat> sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, <clears throat> here's a story for you. There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. See, there's your issue, is the, the balance of power, is the rich is going to oppress the poor. It's not wrong to be rich. It's wrong to be rich and violate the needs of the poor. It's not necessarily righteous to be poor, but it's, it's righteous to be what you are as God gives you resources to serve Him with them. I always go back to God with this, but there was a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished. Sorry, which he bought and nourished. We need a giant, giant print. In and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Let me just pause for a second. Does everybody get the warm and cuddly feeling from this little ewe lamb? I mean, Nathan is pouring on the cuteness, the love, the nurture, the, the, the tre. Everybody that, that has pets, whatever your pet is, right? Even cats. No, I'm kidding. We've got a lot of cat people <laughs> When that when that animal curls up and and God God draws from us an affection, you know, and that's what you're seeing here is this thing is a treasure. This poor man is rich in this relationship where he's got this little ewe lamb that eats his bread, drinks from his cup. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And um, see, the Bible talks directly to our lives, to our situations. You ever meet horse people? Ever know any horse people? They love horses. I have a friend, y'all have a friend too, named uh, Caitlin Taylor. She's a horse person. But you don't want to see that horse be, be ornery with her because she loves that horse, but he's going to get uh, corrected. But she, the horse people are just very interested. They love them, but it's a, it's a different approach than, for example, with the dog or little ewe lamb eating, sitting in your lap, eating your bread, drinking out of your cup. It was like a daughter to him. Now, um, why is this a good story for Nathan to tell David? Why is this going to be compelling and hit him? We're all touched. I've never had a ewe lamb sit in my lap and eat my bread and drink out of my cup, but I get it. Why does David really get it? Yeah, he's he's hit his profession. Nathan comes to me and says, Now, there was once this lieutenant who went to the motor pool to work on tanks or to... Supervise people working on tanks. You don't want the lieutenants turning wrenches, mostly. No. You know, he's going to his where he started. He's going back to the flocks, back to, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. David isn't counted among Jesse's sons because he's on his father's mission to take care of the lambs. Dad sends him to feed his brothers. He gets on mission and goes and feeds his brothers in 17 and, like a good shepherd of Israel, kills the wolf that's trying to get the sheep. He kills Goliath. He's a shepherd a great theme through all of scripture that the shepherd or the king will be the shepherd take care of the flock that's been entrusted to him and so he's not the taskmaster. it's not it's not a picture of of the man driving a, a dog sled or or even an ox cart with a whip it's a shepherd the picture of the king is the shepherd he's the provider protector that's the he they're under my protection and nothing's going to get my little sheep And David lived this, and he was humble, and he served God through this as this son. I mean, that was a lot of his education. I think he was the best slinger in the world at the time because he practiced, and I think he killed Goliath with one shot, not because he had Holy Spirit aiming, although maybe, but because he was good at it, because he had been faithful in the craft that he'd been entrusted to. One of the key uh, weapons, uh, one of the key instruments of the, the shepherd is the sling to protect the flock. I pity the fool that comes into this church building to hurt these, this flock because there are many shepherds, <laughs> many slings. <laughs> Duck! <laughs> if we say everyone get down, we mean hurry <laughs> get down. Anyway, so, so David is a good shepherd. And so he is, he is sitting on the edge of his throne as, David, as uh, Nathan tells this story. Isn't it compelling? Now a traveler came to the rich man. He was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd. Why does a traveler? What is this? Well, now we've got a hospitality problem. I've got to take care of this visitor, I've got to feed him some meat, you know, and, and, uh, and show our good hospitality culturally to him. This rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. That means he cut its little throat, drained it of its blood, skinned it, gutted it, and then barbecued it. I mean, kosher. That's what he did. He prepared it. This wasn't really a food lamb, if you know what I mean. We weren't really raising this one for meat. This was our friend. And so farm people know the difference. People on the farm, you know, some of you are farm people. I've grown up around some farm people, my grandpa. In his retirement, second retirement, he did farming. But it was more like chicken yard and he had one horse and it was hobby fun. But he had chickens and they would would go get the eggs. But he also had pets, like the pet turkey. The pet turkey that got torn up by the dog one day. That turkey would wait for Bapaw. We call him Bapaw. I can't have these normal grandparent names Bapaw. My, grand, my dad's dad, uh, the turkey, I think, would meet him at the mailbox. You know, they were friends. I'm, I don't know if, was it, his name Jake? It was Henry. Henry? Yeah. Well, um, one day the dog tore Henry up, just laid him open. You'd see, turkey breast. and, and uh, You're not supposed to. Uh, this is a living turkey. Bapaw sewed him up put antibiotics on his in him cuz he did all that. He got him fixed. He wasn't quite the same, but he lived for a while. And I forget how Henry died, but I don't think they ate him. I hope they didn't eat him. Anyway, we know the difference between a pet, uh, one of these barn pets and one of these meat stock animals. And so this is a great breach of character, a breach of a protocol where the rich man has oppressed the poor man taken his wealth. The one thing that gave his life then we know of that, that he really re- enjoyed. He was a man of humble means, and he had this one source of uh, blessing from God that, that he enjoyed, that we know about, was this little ewe lamb. And uh, I'm pretty sure this guy's not married. He's, he's got the lamb sitting at the table, and um, sheep are smelly and stuff. But anyway, then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, now this is like an oath, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Well, that's an interesting thought, uh, David, because it's a sheep. It's a lamb. That's not a human. But the point is that you hurt this man so deeply by taking this blessing, this thing that that was the, the, the bright spot. You've got nothing but bright spots in your house. This guy in this little hovel has this one little thing, and you have to take that. And he grits his teeth, and he hates that injustice, that inequity. And he doesn't see it. He must make, he deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. He didn't think about the poor man as David's judgment. Now notice, watch the details. He had no compassion, not on the lamb. It was over pretty quick for the lamb. He had no compassion on this man who loved that lamb. That's awesome. He's nailed him because David is thinking of himself. He never thought about Uriah. He never thought about Uriah's mom and dad. He never thought about the the consequences in Bathsheba's life. There might have been a thing. Apparently they were close. Developed a rapport. I I would call it lust more than love, but this man deserves to die. He must make restitution. Nathan said to David, you are the man. So I'm just waiting for David to come down with a judgment, and that saves me from having any relationship to becoming the, the target of David's fury. David has judged himself, and now I just have to make the equation. You're the one. You are the man. That, that's Nathan right there. I've been teaching him from very little to say you're the man because my name is David. This is kind of funny. You're the man. I mean a different thing when he says it, but uh, <laughs> you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now, it's not me. It's not Nathan. I'm just a prophet carrying God's word. And I don't mean to say Nathan's a coward. I just mean it's dangerous. It's high voltage dealing with uh, King David. It is I, God said, who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. and And it... If that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Now, God will do this all through his talking to Israel. David is like a one person version of the nation Israel here. He's always calling them back to remember the historical work that he did on their behalf. Don't you remember the works that I've done for you? Friends, we need to do this whether God brings us to it or not. We need to go back and constantly refresh what God has done for us. Back to the cross all the time. Second service, will have the Lord's table. Back to the cross all the time. Now here's God's, so what? I've done this for you. I've blessed you. And it's, I've, I've made you over rich. Now listen, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. They have taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So you, you use them to kill him. And so you're guilty of this. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I'll even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. What? Is God certifying polygamy here? That's not the point point is that this is how you dishonor a king is how you disgrace a nation is that the ruler with all his accoutrement all his stuff is now spoiled by someone else and david's son will do this indeed you did it secretly but i will do this thing before all israel and under the sun then david said to nathan i have sinned against the lord and nathan said to david the lord also has taken away your sin you shall not die huh Did you just read what I read in verse 12? 11 and 12, the horrors of the coming discipline and scourge that God is going to constantly remind David for the rest of his life of this. I mean, this baby is the first installment. The baby's going to die. And it's going to kill him. It's going to kill... I mean, it's going to really devastate David. And you know the story, I hope, of his fasting and praying. I've sinned, and David said, now look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's Psalm 51. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Did you just see a confession of sin? And then the immediate consequence in God is the removal of the sin. Now here's, I just, I don't want to push this too far, but sin makes us dirty. And God is clean. You're like, oh, he's looking at all of us now. It's just, it's, just, it's just getting some context and some contact with you. Sin makes you dirty, and God's clean, and so the sin has to be removed for clean, cleansing. He confesses his sin, and then immediately the prophet says, the Lord has forgiven you. The Lord has cleansed you, and that he has taken your sin away. You won't die. But, verse 14, because... By this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. See, it's about the honor of God. It's bad what he did to that family. It's awful that he killed this man. But that's a secondary thing to the infinite importance of God's glory and His name. They've blasphemed the Lord. The child also that is born to you you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. God's, God's hammer falls heavy on his close ones. Moses, he almost did what God said. He just hit the rock when God said, speak to the rock. But for that, because of his anger, God says, you're not going to enter the land. And, and Moses has to go back to God a couple times. Come on, Lord, you remember that thing? Don't talk to me about that, God says. I have that conversation sometimes with my sons. Dad, but you, I know you said no, but we want you to say yes. No. but can we, can we talk about it now? It's five minutes later. No. And finally, you have to drop the hammer and God does it. We read about it in Deuteronomy at the end. I asked the Lord to forgive me and to let me enter the land and God says no because you dishonored me in the sight of Israel because you didn't hold me as sanctified in the presence of these people. And so because of his glory, because of God's name, that's what we're here for. When those that are in the most powerful position to glorify God don't. There's the heavy, the heavy hand. And that happened to David and God says this, is, this installment thing is because of my glory because of your failure to be on mission. Apparently, it's pretty important. So let's go to Psalm 51 in the closing moments of our time this morning. I'm glad to confess to you that I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with the structure of Psalm 51. I know I can look it up in so and so's commentary. The best commentary in English on the Psalms is probably um, the three-volume thing just put out by Kregel. It's, um, it's just Psalms by um, Alan Ross. I think that's, if you want exegetical commentary in depth on Psalms, it's, it's Alan Ross um, as a Bible-believing, Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch kind of Christian scholar of Hebrew. But um, I didn't look at his outline. I agonized and prayed over it. And, uh, and I'm going to show you my outline today. In verses one through four, I think you have, as you see in your notes, a summary request from David for forgiveness and cleansing on the basis of God's grace. I need you to clean me up because of who you are, because of your character, which is how he opens in verse one. In verses five through seven, in verses five through seven, you have the concept and focus of sin and the need for inner cleansing for the inner man. It's about the inside. I think that's what's going on in verses five through seven: sin and inner cleansing. And he starts, Behold, in iniquity or in sin My I was brought forth, and my, in sin my mother conceived me. And that inside thing about the inner like gestation, I was brought forth and conceived. Now, behold, truth you have decide, desired or delighted in, in the dark, in the secret self, in that inner recess. And in silence or secrecy wisdom, you will make me know. See, it's about the inner. That theme is tight there. And so now... He's asking in verse 7 for God to do something that will actually clean him up. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me in more than snow I will be white. This is a spiritual inner refreshing. Is it talking about sin. It's the same thing we just had in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12, 12. David confessed his sin. What is it? 13, 12, 13. He confessed his sin and then immediately he has the oracle, the, the, the revelation from God through the prophet Nathan. Your sin is forgiven or your sin is removed. And so... Um, I think the hyssop is important because, Exodus chapter 12, because it is the application of the blood to the lentils. It is the applicator of the blood of the covenant. I talked about this a little bit on Wednesday. I think the hyssop is a reference to that which will really clean you, and it is that work of God on the inner person portrayed in blood through all the sacrifices. <laughs> but it's not the physical sacrifice, and he's going to make that clear. I, I can't even go offer my sacrifices. I need you to clean me first. It's about inner cleansing it's about the spiritual life it's not about the outward ritual in verses 8 through 12 i think he has a chunk where the concept is joy because we have fellowship with god i'll I'll show you why i think this is the inclusio in verse 8 you will make me hear joy and jubilation they will shout in celebration the bones you've broken now look at verse 12 restore to me the joy of your salvation with a spirit of steadfastness you will sustain me It's almost the exact same structure in verse 12 as you have in verse 8, which is the frame. We're talking about joy. It's really good to have this as our discussion today, kind of focus on this a little bit in this psalm. Um, It's easy to get mechanical about the spiritual life and forget that it's a real life. You're not a machine, and you need to rejoice. And sometimes, well, perhaps all the time, you need God to enable you to produce in you this joy. The Apostle Paul says part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. He commands, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice in Philippians 4.4. And so David is looking for this restoration to joy. And maybe maybe this is where the well runs dry for you sometimes. Maybe you say, you know, I don't even know what joy means today. I don't have any joy. And um, I, I know it's easy to try to say, well, it's not about how you feel. It's about what you know and what you think. But by God's design, thinking God's thoughts after Him is designed to produce in us joy. And that is a feeling. I believe the best definition, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, for joy is that response of soul that comes about because of favorable information, good news. Good news that I become aware of elicits in me an elation I'm made that way. You're made that way. If you're impervious to this response on hearing good news, this is a cause for you. This is something to go to God about just like David does. You'll make me hear joy and jubilation. You'll They will shout in celebration the bones you've broken as the request, the expectation of God's restoration to joy. Now he wants fellowship with God in verse... Nine, hide your face from my sins and all my iniquities wipe clean. See, I'm out of fellowship with God when I'm not having fellowship with Him. I think He's hiding His face from me because there's a dirty problem and He's separated. And so, you know about this. If you don't give kids your attention, if you withhold attention from them, don't give them your face, uh, if they have any sensitivity at all, they'll start to kind of seek it. They want that. And David's going after that. But interestingly, don't look at my sin. Wipe me clean. It's not about looking at David. It's about looking at his sin. And David is not his sin. So he asks God to hide his face from his sin while he gives me his attention. Wipe plain all my iniquities. A pure heart created me, O God, and a steadfast spirit renewed within me. This is probably in verse 10, the center of this little chunk in verses 8-12. through 12. Is the work that God has to do. Remember, we said this is a prayer for divine intervention about personal sin. He can clean me up and forgive my sin, but I want something that doesn't just remove the negative, it adds the positive. Clean me up and create this clean heart, a pure heart, a steadfast spirit. Do not send me out from your presence and your Holy Spirit. Do not take from me. I think this is parallel to hide your face from my sins wipe clean my iniquities now don't send me away and don't send your holy spirit out of me the focus being on god's presence and on god's holy spirit in verse 13 i'm sorry verse 11 so restore to me the joy of your salvation with a spirit of steadfastness you will sustain me i've translated all the imperfects as imperfects as just future statements or present statements You could say these are following the imperative requests. But I've I've done it kind of wooden literal, and I haven't interpreted the imperfects as imperatives. Because he doesn't, and I want you to hear it like, like it's said. But I think he means, this is what I want you to do. And he's expecting God to do it. With a spirit of steadfastness, you will sustain me. So joy, as the frame for this, requires fellowship with God. He wants fellowship with God which requires God to disregard his sin, to to separate it as far as the east is from the west, and then to not, not, excuse me, not to send him from his presence. God, let me be in your presence. Don't forsake me from the assembly, from those who assemble with you and serve you. And don't take your spirit from me. I think this is a special prayer that would apply in this case to only David. The big deal in 1 Samuel 13 is that Saul loses the Holy Spirit because he disobeys God. God says, I'm going to pick a man after my own heart who's going to uh, serve me, and you're, you're going to be removed. That's 1 Samuel 13. David is mentioned in verse 14 as the first name we have for David is a man after God's heart. Saul loses the Holy Spirit, a special endowment, a special temporary empowerment for his work, and that's the Old Testament ministry of the Spirit in just a few. And then when David is anointed, he receives the Holy Spirit. This is for the king. Don't stop me from doing the work. And I think it's a prayer that he not die. I think it's a prayer that is fulfilled just there in 2 Samuel 12, 13. You confess your sin, you won't die. You you, you will be removed. Your sin is removed. But notice that the frame of joy seeks fellowship with God and that's the source of our joy. And I said Wednesday night, the problem with us is when we look at ourselves, we look at what, what David is doing. Do we want this? Do we want God to fully characterize us with Himself? Do we really want to be His people and have it His way and let go of anything that stops us from having it His way? The writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, let anything that is holding you back, just let it go. The encumbrance that so easily entangles us, sin that holds you back, anything that's a distraction. And you know what? Maybe it's not a sinful act in itself, but if it's holding me back from serving God, it's starting to look like an idol, right? So whatever it is, see, do we want this work of God? It's radical. Nobody thinks like this all the time. I know, meditate on this. You'll think about it more. You'll be more like this as the Spirit fills you with this idea, as this, this attitude, which we're going to hear has a purpose in verses 11, or 13 through 17. We're going to teach and we're going to worship now in verses 13 through 17 as a consequence of fellowship with God. See how it flows? Restore my joy through fellowship with you, which will be possible through the cleansing of sin. And then verses 13 through 17, teaching and worship. I will teach transgressors your ways. The word for roads, Derek, is is that I think they hear ways and they think of of a path, the way of life and sinners to you will return or turn, shuv, to uh, be converted. My English Bible is a good translation. So I, the transgressor, having been restored to fellowship and joy with you, can now do what you sent me to do. I can teach and others will be converted. Save me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. I will, my tongue will, joy, it will joyfully sing, my tongue will joyfully sing, your righteousness. See, I put it right in Hebrew word order just in case. O Lord, O Lord, my lips you will open up My mouth will announce your glory. There's your answer. If you think that you don't deserve to speak for God, well, I can't tell someone about Jesus or uh, who am I to say that this is what's right or wrong? It's okay. We're just saying what God said. And in fact, let's be like David and say, God, if you want something said, help me say it. Open my mouth to speak your word. As the Lord Jesus told the disciples, when you need to speak, don't worry about what you're going to say. It'll be there. But this is for those that are walking by the Spirit, if you will. This is for people that are saturated with the Word. And after today, my prayer for you is that the way you could bear witness for someone this week is you could say, "Father, I have a relationship with you that results in my joy because you give it to me. Help me share that joy. Help me tell someone, at least to bear witness for someone that there is real joy, there is real fulfillment, there's real satisfaction, and I have it." and I can't give it, but I can tell you who can. It's the context of your attitude for sharing the gospel, as David is describing here, speaking for God. Save me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation, and then resulting, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, my lips, you will open up, and my mouth will announce your glory. That's verse um, 15. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, and burnt offering. You do not pl- take pleasure. Now what? This is about my inner person. It's not about the outward ritual that portrays the realities of relationship with God. You didn't want a burnt offering. Saul tried to do burnt offerings to get God's favor for Samuel 13, and he lost the Holy Spirit for it. See, this is not about the ritual. This is about the reality that the ritual portrays, because we're not done with the ritual. It comes in verse 19. The sacrifices of God, though, in verse 17, are a spirit that has been broken or shattered. A heart that has been shattered, broken, and crushed. Same word, twice. The spirit shattered, the heart shattered, crushed. Humility, a recognition of our sinfulness, uh, a constant recognition of our need because we're sinners. That's the attitude that pleases God that is the point of the sacrifices. And now the conclusion, verse 18 and 19 because I'm teaching the transgressors, they're turning to you, because you've restored me, the king, despite my failure. Now do good to Zion, the people. The people and the land. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. You will build the walls of Jerusalem. It's a prayer for national recovery, restoration. Then you'll take pleasure in sacrifices of righteousness, burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they will offer up on your altar young bulls The anticlimactic seeming end is that we can do the worship that you want us to do when we are who you want us to be. And David, the king, is one picture of the nation. When we're walking with you and we have the sacrifices that please God, the contrite heart and so forth, the broken spirit, then we can go and worship you as you want. We have a priesthood today. It isn't burnt offerings. We are ourselves to be a sacrifice to God. But we've talked about the believer priesthood. Don't bring your sacrifices of praise to God. Don't bring sacrifices of care for one another, as we've read in Hebrews chapter 13. Don't bring the sacrifice of self without that attitude that David says is the prior issue, the broken heart, the contrite spirit. That is the point. And this is why David is not just an an outward obeyer of things. His outside conduct is coming from his person inside and his rapport with God. And that hasn't changed. Other things have changed, but that hasn't changed. Our attitude does matter. Father, thank You for the recovery of King David that we can see Your work, and we do, even when You judge us in our sinfulness, You're righteous when You bring a charge. You're holy when You judge. Thank You for the joy of our salvation and the purpose of that joy, that we would speak Your truth and sinners would be converted. Give us wisdom to, like David, be humble before you and bold in your power with your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.